It was 1859, and Charles Dickens published his historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was a story of London and Paris before and after the French Revolution. Fast forward a couple of hundred years, and in 2009, Dr. John MacArthur published his outstanding work on the parable of the prodigal son called A Tale of Two Sons. And so if I could ride the coattails of great men today, I'd like to tell you a tale of two mothers. These are two mothers who had much in common at first glance. When you first looked at them, they looked very much alike. They seemed to have a great similarity in every area of their life. Both of them were from the same hometown. They had the same friends. They had the same neighbors. Both were raised with the same values. Both believed the same things. They were raised with the same interests, the same culture, the same way of doing things. Both of them were spiritual women. They both wanted to see the kingdom of God come. They both desired with all of their hearts that Jesus Christ would be the king in this coming kingdom. They believed on Christ with all of their hearts. Both of them were blessed with sons. Both of them believed that their sons were someday destined for greatness. In fact, both of them received prophecies that their sons would not only be great, but would also suffer. And both had a son who died before them in service to God. But that's really about as far as the similarities go. The first mother very clearly pondered God's will for her children. The second mother pushed her own agenda for her children rather than wanting what God wanted. The first mother listened to the wisdom of her adult son. The second mother tried to manipulate her adult son. The first mother clearly sought after God's glory The second mother clearly sought after her own glory. The first mother loved Israel. She loved her home country. The second mother saw Israel simply as a means to personal gain and wealth. The first mother saw herself simply as God's servant as a mother. But the second mother sought her own selfish motives as a mother serving only herself. The first mother caused others to worship God. The second mother caused others to be angry and indignant. The first mother learned to serve Christ. The second mother sought to manipulate and use Christ. The first mother sought no glory and is immortalized in history The second mother sought great glory and we never hear from her again. The first mother was content with the father's will. The second mother was very discontent with the father's will. The first mother, by her behaviors, made her children look good. And the second mother, by her behaviors, made her children look foolish. The first mother had a habit of submitting to authority. The second mother had a habit 
of swaying and manipulating authority. And the first mother considered it a privilege to be used by God. And the second mother considered it her her inborn right to be exalted by God. In fact, these mothers knew each other very, very well. They grew up together because they were sisters. The first mother, the one who was humble and content and sought after God's glory, her name is Mary. Her husband's name was Joseph and her son was Jesus. The second mother, the one who was arrogant and manipulative and sought her own glory, her name was Salome. Her husband's name was Zebedee and her son's names were James and John who would eventually become disciples of Jesus Christ. And we know who Salome was by putting together several verses in three different gospels. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six says that looking on from a distance at the cross of Christ when he was crucified, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, We put that together with Mark 15, verse 40, who lists the same three women. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, who is Joseph, and Salome. And we get her name. And then John 19, 25 confirms that apparently Mary's sister Salome had come closer to the cross. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Now, I bring out this comparison, this tale of two mothers, not to emphasize motherhood so much, but simply that motherhood is the venue in which we see, it's the avenue, it's the stage in which we see a comparison of two characters. In Mary, we see spiritual humility, and in Salome, we see spiritual vanity, And to help us understand this lesson, I want to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Now, in Matthew 18, 19, and part of 20, Jesus has been preaching that the kingdom of God is coming. And he's answering questions like, what is the kingdom going to be like? Who gets into the kingdom? But for Christ's kingdom to come to fruition, he'll have to have kingdom subjects, those who are forgiven of their sins. And to have sins forgiven, the wages of sin, the rightful payment of my eternal separation from God, his presence to bless, the eternal death of a living punishment, that must be paid for me. I can't make that payment. And so very far from saying that the kingdom of Christ was coming immediately, the message of Jesus Christ was that to bring this kingdom in much later, he would have to be sacrificed right now. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Well, that's the setting for our tale of two mothers. Now, like a good doctor warns of symptoms that could harm you, I want to give you four examples of spiritual vanity that can harm you and frankly can harm those around you because it's like a contagious disease. The first example of spiritual vanity we might call the privileged. The privileged. Now, apparently, 
the disciples and those around them who believed in Christ, they, they couldn't fathom that the kingdom wasn't coming immediately. I mean, they were headed toward Jerusalem. This was the time. They'd been together for over three years. And we will say this, we want to commend their total faith that the kingdom was going to be given to Christ. They had no doubt about that at all. But for them, what this meant for these disciples who had been under Roman rule for their entire lives, this meant that Rome was going to be overthrown. It meant that something big was going to happen and that Jesus would now ascend to the throne. They could not have been more wrong. And Salome, the mother of James and John, she saw this as an opportunity. And we see her opportunity in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, I will say this to her credit. She believed that Jesus was going to be king. And so she boldly asks if James and John could be essentially the top two guys in the kingdom right under Jesus Christ. It was very common, not only in all of history, but common in this culture to use the influence of family and friends to gain political power. What's the old saying? That's not what you know, but who you know. We still know that today. And apparently Salome was counting on this. I mean, Jesus and James and John, they're already first cousins. Jesus had already chosen them to be apostles, and now mom wanted more. This was bold. It was selfish. Jesus had just predicted his own persecution, his own torture, his own death right before coming to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that the text here, and in none of the Gospels, when Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection, none of the Gospels records anything other than a negative or a lack of a response. There's never a record of somebody saying, thank you, Lord, for what you are about to do. Nobody ever says that. And in this particular text, it's as if he never said it. It's as if it never happened. It's like the disciples in Salome were were so starstruck with the coming kingdom that she's drooling over what Christ might be able to do for her family. No more fishing business. No more having her son smell like fish all the time. She was going to hit the big time. And she came, you know this, kneeling before him, bowing down. She's treating him like he's the king right now. Do not take this as an act of worship. This is an act of flattery. To say, look how flattering I am towards you. In fact, in the parallel account of Mark chapter 10, we get more detail In Mark, it's the sons coming to Jesus. But when we harmonize these accounts together, we see that mom, Salome, she spoke first with the boys chiming in later. And when they did talk, they took their mother's lead. Mark 10.35 says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Parents, If your child comes to you and says, I'm going to ask for something, would you say yes? What do you say? Oh, that depends. What are you asking for? They know that they're not being completely upfront and they're trying to be manipulative. And Jesus played along. He said, what do you want me to do for you? He already knew their mother had just said it. Mark 10, 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left 
in your glory, and you might put a little asterisk, like my mommy just said. You can almost hear the implicit, by the way, this is us, your cousins. We grew up playing together. Remember us? This is your aunt. Remember, she used to bring bread over on the Sabbath. Remember her? It was purely a self-seeking request so that mom could bask in her exalted position as the mother of the second most powerful men in the kingdom. And at this moment, Salome and James and John were really no different than all of the Pharisees that Jesus condemned Matthew 23, 6, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and they're just like them. Now, Salome made an assumption. Her assumption was that as the aunt of Jesus, the mother of Jesus' cousins, that the usual ancient Near Eastern custom of hiring your family for the family business would be kept. In other words, she believed she was privileged. She was the privileged. I find it ironic that spiritual leadership in the church is chosen on this basis all the time. Either a son or a brother or an oldest, dearest friend of a pastor or one of the elders makes it into leadership. There's nothing wrong with related people serving together, but all of them must be qualified by the qualifications objectively set forth in Scripture. If they are, terrific. This is an incredibly insidious lie that believers tell themselves, that we are somehow inherently privileged or worthy of spiritual greatness of some sort. This is the lie that Salome told herself. Now, I'm never one to want to make a comparison between siblings, but you can't help to look at Mary. Mary, on the other hand, when she was visited by an angel to be told that she would give birth to the Son of God, talk about spiritual greatness. What was Mary's response? Luke one thirty eight. she said, Behold, I am the doule, the female slave of the Lord. In her song later in Luke chapter 1, Mary described herself as one of those of humble estate who is again a doule, a female slave of God, the lowest of the low. For just a minute, can I put you and put me in perspective from the standpoint of the kingdom of God, the standpoint of the church of Jesus Christ, anyone who thinks that they're a vital, irreplaceable part of the kingdom has completely deluded himself. That is not true. If I could appeal to our doctrine of total depravity, you are irrelevant to the kingdom. The only reason you have relevance is because God decided to give you some, and that's it. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. As a preaching pastor, I do my best to be faithful, but I am under no illusions that I'm somehow irreplaceable. I got to graduate with 87 other guys the other night who could replace me very easily. And I know this. The Apostle Paul viewed himself as the least of all the apostles and the greatest of all the sinners. And listen, this wasn't just some sort of platitude that he said to impress people. He really believed it. Let me prove to thee the Apostle Paul believed that he was the greatest of all sinners. Even when he was being verbally abused and physically abused by the high priest while he was under arrest and he was wrongly arrested, the high priest ordered the Apostle Paul to be struck on the mouth, to be slapped or punched. And Paul, he lashed back. He said with his words in Acts 23, 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, the text doesn't say whether that was appropriate or not. But Paul says, 
See, Paul didn't know that the person giving that order was the high priest. And those around him said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul didn't say, do you know who I am? Do you know that I am the apostle sent to the Gentiles? Do you know that I am the greatest apostle probably who will ever live? Do you know that I'm going to write half of the New Testament? He didn't say that. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And he repented. And he was sorry because he was humble. He was submissive, even to wicked men in authority. Once in a while, could I encourage you to do an attitude check? And remember that you are not more special than your brother or your sister. You are not more worthy. God's plan is different for each and every person. Beware of envy. Beware of jealousy. Beware of thinking of yourself as the privileged. Salome thought she was privileged. Her sister Mary, in contrast, the only person in history to ever get away with rebuking Jesus, by the way, she's his mother. When Jesus was 12... And the family had traveled to Jerusalem and lost Jesus for three days only to find him in the temple sitting among the teachers. Mary scolded her son. She said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now listen, don't take that as as Mary saying that Jesus has sinned. She's just saying, I'm in distress. Why, Why did you do this? And of course, Jesus was sinless. And so he had done nothing wrong. And probably for the umpteenth time she found out again that you can't ever rebuke a perfect child he was respectful he was kind he was gentle and yet he gave her a witheringly perfect argument for being in the temple why were you looking for me did you not know that i must be in my father's house of course again and how did mary respond Did she believe herself privileged as the mother of Jesus that she should somehow be special? Well, the text says that she didn't really understand what he was talking about, but her response is remarkable. She just stopped. And the text in Luke says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. You know what that means? It means she grew. It means she matured. It means that she learned. It means that she gained an understanding, that she knew that she was speaking to the very Son of God and she was hearing from him and she just said, stop, I will learn from this. Now remember, a good doctor warns of symptoms that can harm you. And so let me give you a second example of spiritual vanity that can harm you and those around you. The first is the privilege. We might call the second example the prideful. The prideful. So how would Jesus respond to Salome and to her sons? Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. I am so tempted at the end of verse 22 to give James and John a sort of South Louisiana redneck accent. Yeah, we can do it. That's right. They don't know what they're talking about, do they? We'll get to that in a moment. They had no idea of the implications of the request they were making. What is this? The cup 
that Jesus is going to drink. Well, this is, this is what he just said in verses 18 and 19, that he's going to die. He's going to be tortured. The Apostle Paul, he learned that the pathway to the kingdom, the pathway to glory in the kingdom is through suffering, is through affliction, is through pain for the sake of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul knew that suffering and affliction is the pathway to glory in the kingdom. Jesus taught that suffering and affliction is the pathway to glory in the kingdom. That the great ones in the kingdom are the ones who suffer. Jesus said earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 11, Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The greatest glory alongside Christ in the heavenly kingdom will be for those who have endured the greatest suffering for him here on this earth in this life. And Jesus asked them, well, when Jesus asks you an open-ended question, just be careful. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, yep, we can do it. What they should have said is, Mom, be quiet. Just back off. Instead, they followed her lead and they sought for glory. And Jesus told James and John, you will drink my cup. This is a common expression to mean you will do something all the way. You will take this to the furthest extreme. You will experience every drop, every bit, every atom, every molecule of this cup that I'm going to drink and I'm going to give it to you and you will guzzle it down and you will drink every drop and you will regret that you ever asked for glory because you don't know what's coming. What they should have said is, that's okay. You drink the cup. We are your slaves. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that in us, the sufferings of Christ are completed. They're finished. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. It's not that Christ's death was somehow insufficient. It's that the church of Jesus Christ finishes the job. We don't offer sacrifice for sins, but we finish the suffering that Christ began. We suffer with him. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Galatians 2, verse 20, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what would happen to James and John? Would they achieve the right and left place at Jesus' side? I don't know that. That remains to be seen, but it certainly wouldn't be in this life because they would suffer first. Acts 12 records early in the history of the church, James was arrested and he was impaled with a sword. He was the first of the apostles to die. And then John, his brother, would be exiled in the late, in his 90s to the island of Patmos alone as the last living apostle. They did drink the cup. If Jesus had told them exactly what he was going to do, he would have said, James, you'll be the first to die and John, you'll be the last to die all alone the two worst positions they could have picked. And Jesus made this point so very clear that positions in the kingdom are based on the sovereign choice of God the Father. 
It's his choice. Now, what about the other disciples? They're hanging around there. The other 10, when they hear this, verse 24, and when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. I'll bet they were. They were incensed. Now, I don't want to spend much time getting outraged on their behalf because they were just as bad as these two. Mark 9, verses 33 and 34, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? I mean, he already knew. He's a sovereign God. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. At the Last Supper, the final Passover, hours before the arrest of Jesus, Luke twenty-two twenty-four, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, the other ten weren't outraged because they were somehow humble. They were probably outraged just because they hadn't thought to have their mommies come ask Jesus. Man, that was a good idea. I wish I thought of that. Let me give you a contrast to this prideful attitude. Again, the Apostle Paul, he made the case that if anyone had caused a boast, if anyone should be proud and exalted in the church of Jesus Christ, it ought to be him. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. In other words, if anyone deserved salvation, if anyone deserved to boast, if anyone deserved position in the church, it ought to be Paul. Here's what he says about himself. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There's no easy way to say this, but he's saying I count all of those things I could brag on, literally in Greek, as dung, as what you see in the bathroom. It's worthless. And so in terms of spiritual greatness, of leadership, of responsibility, if anyone could boast, it would be the Apostle Paul. But listen to his attitude toward being a spiritual leader. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul says that he is a minister of the gospel, a teacher of the word of God, a spiritual leader, and he says, by the mercy of God. This is a word that means that I have had pity given to me. It's not something he begged for. It's not something he pleaded for. It's something that he just received. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, soon to be Paul, is headed to Damascus to persecute Christians. He's blinded by a light from heaven. He falls to the ground and he's confronted by none other than Jesus Christ. And then Ananias, the believer who's chosen by God to assist Paul, he's told to help him. And here's what Jesus said to Ananias about Paul. He said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And listen to this. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How very often have I interacted with men and women who want the so-called glory of ministry without the suffering? Not Paul. He was conscripted. He was drafted. 
Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we discussed that the one who says, I ought to be, I deserve to be, is really just self-deceived into thinking that he's something special when he's not. I deserve to be a leader in the church. I deserve to be responsible for the spiritual welfare of people. Actually, that's the last one who should ever be given that responsibility. Spiritual leadership isn't a toy that you just take turns with. It's a calling, it's a responsibility that's so vigorous that both First Timothy and Titus give an almost impossible list of qualifications. It's so rigorous that the New Testament indicates that one has to be called, he has to be trained, he has to be tested. And this is not something that happens overnight. James even warns in James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I got a card of appreciation once from one of our members here and it simply said, better me than you, or better you than me, rather, love so-and-so. James 3, 1. Yes, I'd rather just be the listener because I'm not going to get nailed by God for preaching a sermon that wasn't right. You will be. By the way, if you have a desire to teach the word of God, every one of you can. It's really simple. You can do it anytime you want to. Did you know that? You have neighbors. Go knock on their doors and say, would you like to come have cupcakes, lemonade, and I'm going to teach the Bible. Just do it. We call it an evangelistic Bible study. Now, on occasion, a man might say, I aspire to the office of overseer. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. That's great. That's terrific. It will put you on a long path of training and testing. The more, the merrier. But remember this. Remember very clearly that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy verse four, chapter 4, rather, that one of the hallmarks of faithful leadership is to endure suffering. To endure suffering. Now, this is in the context of Paul's command to preach the word, meaning that you're not only willing, but able to do the hard work of sweating and clawing for the right interpretation of Scripture. Listen, I don't get to this pulpit just having floated on a magic carpet and having somebody hand me some notes that work. This is the result of begging God, wrestling God, of of sweating and looking at the calendar and saying it's Saturday and I still don't understand this text. What am I going to do? In other words, to ask for spiritual leadership is asked to suffer, to sacrifice, to sweat, and to surrender. Because if anyone would aspire to spiritual greatness for personal gain, the prideful, then that makes you also need to be wary of a third example of spiritual vanity that can harm you and those around you. We might call this example the powerful. The powerful. Look with me at Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called to them, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Let's stop right there for a moment. To lord it over. This is a word that means to bring someone into subjection, to have dominion over someone. Now, this is different than exercising legitimate authority. Paul told Titus in Titus 2, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's not what this is talking about, though. This is talking about leadership that's cruel in nature, that's harsh, that's dictatorial, that's unkind, that's ruthless. And at the time that Jesus made this statement, virtually every government on earth was some form of dictatorship. And so they knew exactly what he was talking about. And in fact, the shepherds of the church are warned against this type of spiritual leadership. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 2, commands, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, 
as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Domineering, it's the same Greek word that Jesus used to say lording it over. It doesn't mean that at times shepherding doesn't involve stern correction. According to Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and a dozen other passages in the New Testament, sometimes shepherding even involves putting someone out of the fellowship until they decide to behave themselves. But this is not to be the action of some sort of megalomaniac, someone obsessed with power who uses sheer control to get people to do what he wants. Yesterday, we also mentioned Diotrephes in Third John. Diotrephes is immortalized by John as the man in the local church who loves to be first, not because he's qualified, but because he thinks it's his inherent right. And he's so obsessed with his own power that John even wrote Third John to an individual church member, a guy named Gaius, because he said to Gaius, I think that Diotrephes might make trouble if I wrote this letter to the whole church. In other words, Diotrephes might take a letter to the church and intercept it. So John's having to be wily about it. Jesus is warning his disciples here by saying essentially, if I put you in positions of power right now, you're going to be just as bad as the Gentiles. You'll be no better than those megalomaniacs who dominate people. Your spiritual leadership will be oppressive. It'll be harsh. It'll be difficult. Now, we don't want to make a mistake here in the coming kingdom. 11 of the 12, we take out Judas, of course. They will, in fact, have high positions of leadership. As a matter of fact, they will be the new leadership of Israel. You see, there's a reason that they were so excited and and starting to jockey for position here right before Jesus told them that he was going to die and be raised from the dead, which they didn't hear that part. Right before that, look what he told them. Look with me back at Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It is at that moment that Jesus fired the current leadership of Israel and said, You are the new guys. But not yet. It'll be later. Small problem. I don't know about you, but if somebody just told me I was going to be one of the 12 most powerful people on earth, I would have trouble hearing what came next. Look at verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, you will be first, but first you have to be last. Because before they would sit on the 12 thrones, Judas would be replaced by Matthias or possibly Paul. Before this would happen, Peter, tradition says that he ministered as far away as Britain and Gaul or France. He would be crucified upside down after watching his wife die. James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother, he would be the first apostle to die, executed by Herod Agrippa in Acts 12, impaled on a sword. His brother John would live 60 more years He would write the Gospel of John, three epistles, book of Revelation. He went from Jerusalem to Ephesus. He fought heretical teaching in the church until about 100 AD, and he died essentially all alone as the last apostle. Andrew, Peter's quiet brother who brought Peter to Christ, he preached in Scythia and Asia Minor and in Greece. He was crucified at Patras in the province of Achaia. Philip, 
was crucified or possibly stoned to death in Hierapolis in Asia Minor after bringing multitudes to faith in Christ. Matthew, who wrote the gospel that we're in here, he was a traveling evangelist. He went to Macedonia, to Parthia, to Ethiopia, and most traditions state that Matthew was burned alive for his faith. Thomas preached the gospel in Babylon. He made his way all the way to India, where he was the first to bring the gospel to to the ancient Hindus. There's still churches in India named after him today. And the one who placed his hands in the in the wounds of Jesus was speared to death for his preaching. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, he took the gospel to Armenia. He was martyred there eventually. He was either crucified or drowned. James the Less, he ministered in Syria. He was crucified there. Thaddeus took the gospel to Edessa. That's modern-day Turkey. He was clubbed to death for his ministry. And Simon the Zealot took the gospel to Persia, to Egypt, to Carthage, and all the way to Britain, And he was martyred by being sawn in half. They will have power in the kingdom. At first, they'll be crucified, impaled, crucified, crucified, stoned to death, burned alive, speared to death, crucified, drowned, crucified, clubbed to death, sawn in half. So I have no problem letting those guys be first because they gave a whole new definition to what it means to be last. Now, if anyone might be able to claim power to the kingdom, Salome thought maybe she had a pretty good shot. Her two boys deserved it. Aunt Salome comes asking for power. But in reality, if Jesus was going to give power to one woman, who's that going to be? Sorry, Aunt Salome, my mom is here, right? And yet, where do we see Mary? Where's the last time we see her? Acts chapter 1, she is simply a member of the new church of Jerusalem gathering to pray worship Christ she's just a faithful church member now she did have one privilege that no one else had all others could address Jesus as son of God she alone could say son and that would be accurate but you know what she calls him in Luke 147 she calls him you are God my savior she doesn't desire power she just desires purity There's one more example of spiritual vanity that can harm you, that can harm those around you. We have the privileged, the prideful, the powerful. How about the example of the pompous? The pompous. Matthew 20, verse 25, but Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Great ones, literally in Greek, the loud ones. These are the leaders who don't use sheer force and power and dominion to rule. They use personality and persuasiveness. Don't raise your hand, but I'll bet some of you have been in churches where the leaders in the church are just the guys who are the loudest ones, the most influential. These are the men who use flattery and charm to, to manipulate others for personal gain. The Apostle Paul warned of these men. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. These are the men and women with award-winning smiles, with the power to charm the skin off a snake. They're the ones on the cover of their own books. They're the ones who, who appear to have teeth so white that they're almost clear because their smile is their money-making machine. 
Do you know, by the way, that Dr. John MacArthur, author of 400 books, only has his face on the cover of one book, and it's the unauthorized biography by Ian Murray, published in 2011? You know what Dr. MacArthur said about that? He said, why did you write that? I'm not dead yet. That was his response. Or it might be the super spiritual Christian who's always the hero of his own stories, always making sure everyone knows how spiritual he is. He brags on his spirituality, on his knowledge, on his resume, all the things that he's done. This is the person who makes a false pretense of closeness in relationships purely to appear as one of the great ones. Maybe he has a charismatic personality, a politician's demeanor, and is nothing but out for personal gain and personal honor and control. Listen, the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach the disciples is instrumental in their development as real leaders. You remember what his nickname was for James and John? He called them the sons of thunder, the loud ones, the great ones. The men who thought by sheer force of personality they could change the world. You know what he's saying to them? Sheer force of personality is not what the kingdom needs. The kingdom needs humility. It needs willing vessels. It needs shattered vessels. It needs bleeding vessels. It needs weeping vessels. It needs sweating vessels. It needs dying vessels. In fact, he makes himself abundantly clear by using his own life as an example. Verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we're understanding that if you want to be the biggest difference in the kingdom, you be a servant. And Jesus did this. He came first to serve. He served humanity by being the very sacrifice for sin. He ransomed all who would trust in him from the certain destruction of the wrath of God. Do you want spiritual greatness? Do you want great reward in heaven? That's okay to say yes to that answer. Then be willing to be nothing. Be willing to be unseen. Be willing to be appreciated. Be willing to be a slave. In fact, just after this sharp rebuke of Salome and James and John, just a couple of days later, he put the disciples in an impossible situation to demonstrate what real leadership looks like. At the Last Supper, Jesus got up from the table and he dressed like a slave, tied a towel around his waist, and he made his disciples submit to him. How? By making them let him wash their feet, the lowliest job, the job of the worst slave of the house, to take the filthy, dusty feet of another one and wash them with your own hands. Peter was so upset by this that he refused at first. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Meaning, if you don't learn this lesson in self-humiliation and in servant leadership, I don't want anything to do with you because you're not part of me. The church of Jesus Christ does not need men and women like Diotrephes who love to be first. The church needs men and women who love to be last because that's what true spiritual leadership is. Salome wanted instant spiritual greatness. Mary just wanted to follow Christ no matter the cost. Now, you've probably figured this out by now, but this is not so much a tale of two mothers as it is really the tale of two gospels. 
a false gospel in which Jesus is a means to an end, that he exists to make me great. And the true gospel which follows Jesus, who said in Mark eight thirty four, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, which sees Jesus as Lord and Savior and us, as Mary said, as his humble slaves, his doule, his female slave, his doulas, his male slave. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He gave the path to spiritual greatness. He said in Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In 1750, a man moved his family to a little town. The town is called Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And he began bringing the gospel to this little tiny tribe of Indians, the Housatonic Indians, and he pastored a little tiny church in the frontier wilderness. Nobody had ever heard of this church. Nobody had ever been around these people really much. He just served and he just ministered in, in incredibly humble circumstances in the frontier area. It's pretty likely that the locals, especially the Housatonics, didn't know who this was. They didn't know that the man standing before him, before them every Lord's Day, was the greatest theologian that America had or to this date ever would produce. The preacher at the forefront of one of the biggest revivals in the history of the church, a preacher whose sermons are still studied today, a preacher who would eventually reluctantly take the post of president of the College of New Jersey, what would become Princeton University. This is, of course, the eminently qualified Dr. Jonathan Edwards. And before he died of smallpox, just three months into his presidency, His last words weren't about his great achievements in ministry, about the glory of being the greatest theologian in American history. His last words were to his wife. His wife was still back in Massachusetts packing to move their things to New Jersey. And he said, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. Do you know what his last act on this earth was? It was to comfort his wife. You will see me in heaven again. Just wait. That's the act of a humble man. Why was Edwards great? Because he never had illusions of his own greatness. He's famous for his 70 personal resolutions, the rules of life that he wrote for himself. Listen to number 12. He says, Resolved. If I take delight in something as gratification of pride or vanity or on any such account, immediately to throw it by. We would call that throw it away to get rid of it. And that is my prayer for you. That anything that would make you think that you are more than you are, that you would throw it by. That you would get rid of it. Might you be less like Salome might you be more like Mary and might you be the most like Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross And might you say, I too have been crucified with Christ. Our Father, we 
ask you now to protect us from our own spiritual pride, from our own vanity, from thinking that we are somehow indispensable to the kingdom. Really, Lord, in reality, there's a place in hell reserved for us and and the only thing keeping us from occupying that reservation is your grace and your kindness. And so, Lord, forgive us when we are beset by spiritual pride, by a sense of our own worthiness, by a sense of our own exaltedness. Romans 3 is very clear that there is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who trusts in you unless you intervene. And so, Lord, we just come thankful to be included. We just come thankful to be part of your family. We just come thankful that we have a spot in heaven. Lord, may we never desire so-called spiritual glory here on this earth. How vain it is. How pointless. What a dead-end street. In fact, it is a good way for us to be disciplined by you and, and severely punished. Lord, I pray you would protect our church from spiritual vanity. It is that which destroys local bodies. I pray you would protect us from those who would be prideful and and who would believe they are more than they are. Protect us, Lord. Keep us humble. Keep us on our faces, on our knees, looking only to Christ, never looking side to side in envy of anyone, but looking only to Christ, thankful that he has chosen us from the foundation of the world. That enough is glory. And we do look ahead to the day when Christ has promised that we would share in his glory in the coming age. Let that be enough, Lord. Let that be enough. And for now, help us to be good female slaves. Help us to be good male slaves. To desire to be last. To race to be last. To race to be the least. So that someday we might be first. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.